As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, please grant grace to us. Open our minds that we may understand our hearts that um, this word may sink deep within our whole being, that we may believe it and and it may inform how we live. And uh, so be with us now, I pray uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to 2 Corinthians again, 2 Corinthians. We've been here for a while. 2 Corinthians and chapter 5. I want to read the first uh, 10 verses. Um, I won't get to all of it today, especially verse 10. We'll leave that for next time. But I want to read it all. 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not by what, not that we would be unclothed, but that that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, as we began all of this way back in chapter 4, at least in the beginning uh, verses of chapter 4, we made note that Paul's dealing with this question of what keeps him from losing heart. He's made the statement that he doesn't lose heart. And we've asked the question, why? Why don't you lose heart given the persecutions and the sufferings and your weakness, both physical and spiritual, uh, given the impossibility of your calling to go uh, and take the gospel where people are blind to it, can't see it, where people are dead to it, don't want to believe it. How can you even do this? And so he, he, how can you keep from losing heart uh, in the midst of that, given all the affliction and all the sufferings and all of that that you're experiencing, Paul. And for us too, then, how can we as believers in Jesus, having this sort of similar calling of the gospel, we're not apostles, but we're called to take this gospel into the world to make disciples. How, how, how can we keep doing that without losing heart? How can we keep living on, following after Jesus in the midst of the world we live in uh, with the various callings that we do have? And uh, with the afflictions that we see and that we experience, the sufferings that happen to us and throughout the world and to our uh, those we love and and our own weaknesses of being of, of spiritual weaknesses of our um, uh, being tempted in various ways and succumbing to temptations in various ways, even and trying not to and how do we live with spiritual weaknesses, how do we live in the sense of our physical weaknesses um, And all that comes against us. So how do we live and continue to persevere in the world? And so that's the question. How do we keep from losing heart? Or how can we be, as Paul mentions in chapter, in verse 6 of what I just read, how can we be of good courage 
in the midst of all this. And we've, we've, we've noted a number of things, just by way of review. We've noted a number of things. First, that Paul is able to continue on, not lose heart, because he, he preaches Jesus as Lord, not himself as Lord. And so since Jesus is the Lord, Paul can take heart. He knows that it's Jesus, the one who, who will sustain him. He's the Lord of Paul's own heart. He knows that it's Jesus who saves, not Paul himself. And so Paul can trust that as he goes in obedience to what God has commanded him, that the Lord Jesus can open blind eyes because he's Lord over everything, even spiritually, spiritual blindness. He can give light. He knows that Jesus is Lord. Therefore, he can give spiritual life where there's spiritual death. And so if he were preaching himself, that Paul himself had to do all this, he'd be hopeless. But he isn't because he knows that Jesus is in fact Lord. So he preaches Jesus as Lord. So Jesus is the one who can save. Jesus is the one who can sustain people in their salvation. He can enable them uh, to persevere. And so Paul takes heart. So he doesn't lose heart because he knows uh, it's Jesus who is the Lord. And even when Paul looks at his own weakness, that doesn't even cause him to, to lose heart because he knows that even in his own weakness, in fact, through it, this gospel will go out and, 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 and go forth. And so Paul says, my weakness doesn't destroy this calling that I have. And it doesn't even destroy my own life because even though I'm always dying, as we all are always dying, uh, he says, still this life of Jesus is in me. And even in my suffering and my affliction and my dying, the life of Jesus is in you. It comes even through this dying as I, and this suffering as I bring the gospel to people. And so it's, it's, I see it. It's in them. And so he doesn't lose, lose heart. He knows that he's simply, as he would put it, a jar of clay and he has a treasure in him. And his weakness even magnifies this great treasure that's in him because no one gets confused. Everyone realizes, Paul himself realizes, that it's really the power of God, not Paul's own power. And so he can actually rejoice in his weakness knowing that the power of God is being seen even through and in the midst of this, this weakness. And as he mentioned in the end of chapter 4, that he has a particular perspective that keeps him from this losing heart. And the perspective that he has is that he realizes that even his affliction is preparing for him an eternal weight of glory. That is a glory that will be bestowed upon him by God. And this glory is eternal. Nothing can take it away. It's eternal. And it's, it's great. It's a, an eternal weight. It's a great thing that God is bestowing on him and will bestow on him and other believers as well, all believers. And so it gives Paul the perspective to realize that his present afflictions are light and momentary. Not light meaning they're easy, not light meaning they're insignificant, uh, <clears throat> not light meaning they're not real and not painful, but light in comparison to this great weight of glory that's being bestowed on him and will be bestowed on him. And not only that, 
And it's momentary, not that it won't take his whole life, not that it's just going to be a week or two. It really can span his whole life, but momentary in the sense that it's not eternal, that a time will come when it's over. And that all the affliction that he's going through now is preparing something for him, this eternal weight of glory, that is, being ultimately conformed to the image of Jesus. It's happening now, he says, that even though my outer self is wasting away, my inner self is being renewed all the time, day by day. It's being renewed. And so I see that even though I'm afflicted, I'm not crushed. That even though I'm perplexed, I'm not driven to despair. And even though I'm persecuted, I don't feel as if I'm forsaken. And even though I've been struck down, I'm not crushed. Well, how can that be? It can only be that as my body is wasting away through all of this, that, that, that the Lord is sustaining me within. And I still have this deep-seated awareness, understanding, perspective that God is with me and at work in me. In fact, even in my affliction, as it causes me to be aware of my weakness, I depend more upon God and I see even more of his power at work in and through me. And even now, Christ is being formed in me. Uh, he stated it a little differently, but in a similar way, for instance, in Romans in chapter 5. If you can turn there, if you have a Bible or something, turn there just to look and read along as I'm reading. Uh, Romans in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, this great eternal weight of glory. That's our hope. We're hoping in this, this, this glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, similar to what he was talking about in 2 Corinthians. We rejoice in the fact, even in our afflictions, because we know that they won't end this great program that God has for us. Not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. You see, in the midst of our weakness as we turn to God, because we're weak and we can't, and we turn to Him for His help, that produces in us, that renews in us strength day by day in such a way that enables us to endure. And this endurance forms in us character, and that character, of course, is the very character of Christ. He being formed in us. And that's what gives Paul this great hope. Why doesn't he lose hope? Because he sees... The glory being bestowed even now in his weakness as he is being conformed to the image of Christ. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now just, this is just kind of as an aside, I didn't say this last week, I meant to. So that's why I do these reviews, so I can, so I can say what I didn't say. Uh, but, but just think about this. I think about this every time um, I go into a place where someone's dying or I go into a place when our physical weakness especially is, is seen well when I visit my sister. Um, and I have this hope for myself and for you as well. 
the trust that even in those most acute moments where our body is clearly wasting away, when you wonder if there's even anything in there, or if you see great suffering and pain, and you wonder what's happening, believe what's happening is even in those most severe moments that that believer, if that person is a believer in Jesus, that they're actually being renewed within. Even if it isn't apparent to us. Even if all we see is the suffering. That if this word is true, it is that even though we or those believers we love are wasting away, and we see that, the wasting away of it, we can trust that even in those most acute moments of the wasting away, that God really is at work in those moments. And he is really strengthening, somehow renewing, somehow Within them, even, even then. So don't lose heart to visit them. Don't lose heart to be around them. Trust that God is, in fact, strengthening and renewing in ways that they won't be able to express to us, that they might not even, the moment nobody's enabling them, though afflicted, not to despair, though, Perplexed not to despair, not to be crushed, not to be forsaken, and all that. So take this really to heart. Take it really as it is. Take it really literally, if you will. And apply it in every situation for a believer, uh, for a believer in their life. And even for yourself. That's the way he says, we don't look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. What's unseen? What's going on in there that I can't see? What's going on in there that perhaps they can't even see? If this is true then even in those moments, I trust many of us, if not all of us, have seen that, been there with others. Trust at that moment, in those moments, and they may be weeks, months, years, for some, that God is strengthening and, and renewing them. Even then. And perhaps, in glory, we'll talk about that. What we didn't see that was really happening. Trust that was true. Now, Paul goes on because he doesn't sort of stop there, just not with this inward renewal because this eternal weight of glory uh, transcends just an inter, inner renewal, though our outer self is wasting away. We ask the self, well, what about this outer self? And so Paul goes on then in chapter 5 to speak of, of that, what in a sense happens to us after we're dead um, and uh, might sound morbid. One of the reasons I preached this way is that, that this isn't something that people like to preach about necessarily as death. Next week's even uh, more unlikely to be preached about, and that is judgment. And so I wouldn't do that uh, just because I want to necessarily, but I do it because I have to, because if I don't, you'll say, he skipped a lot. And you wonder why. So I'm not going to skip a lot. So here we go. Chapter 5, he begins with these words. He says, For we know 
that if the tent that is our heaven, our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Uh, and so Paul begins to lay out for us, we see something about this, uh, this earthly body. He calls it a tent. And, and Paul's a tent maker, so he knew about tents. And he knew that these things, these tents that were made with his hands, though he may have been very skilled at making these tents, we trust he was, uh, that someday this tent would deteriorate. It would no longer be useful, the tents that he made. And so he was comparing our bodies with those tents that they are temporary. Uh, and he contrasts these temporary uh, bodies with, with, with buildings, uh, something that's permanent, something that uh, wouldn't be destroyed. And, and just to make his, his case, he says these tents are our earthly home, our bodies are earthly home. When that's destroyed... We have a building, and that is from God, and it's not made with hands like my hands make these tents. It's made with God, and when God makes something, uh, it sticks around. It's, it's permanent, and it's eternal. It's, it's, it's in the heavens. That is, it's kept there in the heavens, and so it can't be in any way, shape, or form uh, destroyed. And so he begins to lay, to begins to lay that, that out. And, and this building is from God, and he had already spoken about these, these new bodies, if you will, this building from God uh, to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, again, if you'll turn to that, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I, sw- I want to read a lot. I want to read beginning with verse uh, 35. And uh, I'll read for a while. But, but Paul's dealing with this new body. He's dealing with this, this building from God, not made with hands. And he, he describes it. And, and he's describing the indescribable because how do you describe that which... You're not really accustomed to seeing. Verse 35, he said, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And he he says, You foolish person. Uh, What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. So it has to die first. And, and, And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So if you look at this grain and you put it in the ground and it dies, when it comes out, it doesn't quite look that same like that little seed or that little grain. It looks very different than that. And, and you go, well, how did that come from that? And he says, well, that's, that's what we're talking about here. Something died and now it's going to come. And, and, and what we're going to see is, might seem different. Verse 30, but God gives it a body as he's chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. Uh, these are heavenly bodies. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. So we have an earthly body. So it has a particular glory as an earthly body. But where do you see the heavenly ones in a sense as he's leading us to? Verse 41. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. It's earthly. It's perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So he's talking about that. He's talking about from a tent that's temporary to a building that's permanent. Perishable to imperishable. What is sown is, it is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. Sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's on a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body, not spiritual in the sense that it's not, can't touch it. It's not material in that sense, but spiritual of the spirit. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it's written, 
The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven. So also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You see, this body that we have is going to be like the resurrected body of Jesus. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood can't, and this is what I read earlier, can't inherit the kingdom of God, uh, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. So he says, when the trumpet sounds, we know this is the end, the second coming. When Jesus returns, then this is when all this takes place. Um, uh, the dead will be raised imperishable bodies and we shall be changed for this perishable body body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your victory death where is your sting the sting of death is sin the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us victory through our lord jesus christ he says so a day is coming Paul's saying, when it would be complete. See, we, we weren't meant to be um, in a body that deteriorates. We were meant, Adam hadn't sinned. We were meant to be in a body that was incorruptible, that was imperishable. That would live eternally and to live like that as human beings. A body and soul. It isn't that our bodies are bad and our souls are good and so souls are immortal and bodies just die off. No, not as we understand how God has made us. He's made us to be complete human beings, body and soul. And so he's going to redeem us completely, body and soul. And so Paul says that he longs for that time, uh, body and soul. This, this body, as I mentioned, is like the body of Jesus. Again, Philippians, if you'll turn if you can, Philippians in chapter 3. Paul speaks of this, verse 20. He writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to, uh, to himself. And so this is the kind of body that we'll have, like that body of Jesus. And you could, I, I don't know what that'll be like exactly, except that it will never die. It'll be imperishable, incorruptible. Um, uh, no disease will ever be able to affect it, obviously. Uh, and, uh, and we'll live that body forever. And uh, it'll live, this body, we will in this body, uh, live in what the scripture calls the new heavens, the new earth. That is the dwelling place of God with his people, that the earth will be renewed and, uh, and we'll, we'll live on an earth and the earth in the sense of this renewed place where human beings were made for. The earth was made for man, the scripture tells us. And so it'll be remade for the remade uh, man and human beings uh, as well. And that's where we'll dwell uh, for all eternity in such incorruptible, incorruptible, imperishable uh, bodies. And Paul says he has a longing for that, verse 2. 
He says, for in this tent we groan, longing to, be, to, to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. <laughs> in other words, a disembodied soul. Paul says, that's not the end of it all, it's just to be a disembodied soul. That isn't the, the point of it. I don't want to be naked. I'm, I'm looking for having a body. And, uh, and uh, he says, verse 4, for while we're still in this tent, we groan. So now it's a groaning. He's being, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, that we would be further clothed. He says, I realize I live in this body and it's wasting away. And I long for that body that isn't wasting away. Uh, but we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And then verse 5, he says, it's God who's given us this longing. It's God who's given us this longing. He said, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. He's prepared us for this resurrection. He's prepared us uh, to be made complete. He's prepared us uh, so that we would have an imperishable body and live eternally. Um, And he's given us the spirit as a guarantee. Now, we've come across that expression before in chapter 1 and verse 20. Paul wrote to them and said, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put, also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You see? And so it's God's, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. We don't see the fulfillment of all those promises right now. They didn't then or right now. We won't see the fulfillment of all those promises until the new heavens and the new earth. Then we'll see the fulfillment of all the promises of Jesus. And so he he says, however, don't, don't worry. God has established you, made you permanent in Jesus he has established you with us in Christ. He's anointed us. He's put his spirit upon us. He's also put his seal on us. He owns us. And he's given us his spirit as a guarantee. Also, when he wrote to the church in Ephesus, he used this same kind of language in Ephesians in chapter 1 as he lays out how we're saved by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 1, he writes this, Paul does, In him, that is in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, the Father who works all things uh, according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory, that is the Father's glory. In him, that is in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, also believed in him, that is, believed in Jesus, and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Um, That's the sense of this guarantee. The the word guarantee um, is an expression that's used for a down payment. You know what a down payment is. If you're going to buy a big purchase car or house or something like that, uh, you may not have enough money to pay for it all at one time. 
but you have to convince the person from whom you're buying it that you're good for the rest. And so to be able to convince the person from whom you're buying it that you're good for the rest, you have to give them a down payment. And that down payment has to be sufficient enough that they'll say they've already paid so much on this, they won't walk away from it. So the down payment is supposed to be that much. Now, when it isn't that much, then we have problems like we had in 2008. But that's another story. But, but the, the down payment has to be sufficient that people say, you're not going to walk away from this. And so that's what God has done for us. He says, this isn't the completion of it right now. That will come, but I'm going I'm to guarantee it. And I'm going to guarantee it by my very presence with you. And that is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a great gift, a great work in us, right? When the Spirit comes, what does he do? He gives us life. Uh, he enables us to believe. Uh, he convinces us of the truth of our own sin. He convinces us of the truth of the, of, the, of the sufficient payment of Jesus for our sin on the cross. He convinces us that Jesus' righteousness is sufficient for us. And, and we can take it. He, 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 he convinces us that we're adopted into the family of God. Gives us that assurance. His, the Holy Spirit witnesses to our spirit that we're children of God. All that he does, he, 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 he gifts us to enable us to, to actually minister in the name of Christ. He, 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 he works in us that we can see Christ being formed in us. So he does all of that. But he's, he's just the down payment. It, 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 it doesn't all come to fruition here. We, we still sin. He helps us with that. Assures us of forgiveness. Works in us that we wouldn't. But, but we still do. We're going to die physically. And so we know this isn't it. If you think this is it, you would be a sad person, I suspect. And so he's just, he's the down payment, a great down payment. He convinces us that God's good for the rest. It's going to happen. But, but he's, 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 he's the down payment. And so since we have this much, we long for the rest. We long for what's to come. That's a good longing in us. Uh, one friend of mine puts it like this. He says we should live always with a contented discontentedness. Right? We're content because we, we, because of what we know, because of what Christ has done. So we're content. We're content because we know that Jesus is ruling and reigning and all of that. So we're content in that sense. But there's still this holy discontentedness in us because we, we long for that which is to come. And that's a good longing for what is to come. Now, the question is, how does all this keep Paul from losing heart? Or how does it, it enable him, as he, as he puts it in the very next sentence, so we're always of good courage? How does this keep Paul in good courage, and thus us, us too? Well, I think like this, first of all. Paul, and we should too, have a very strong sense of what is real. The, the realism of all of this. Paul's very honest with himself, with us, about the fact that we're jars of clay. That this really is just a tent. That this really is dying. That it really is uh, wasting away. I sometimes think that my generation 
is going to die of anxiety and discouragement. Because somehow we really don't want to face it. (laughs) We really don't want to face the fact that this thing is really wasting away. I don't know how we can ignore it. I look in the mirror every day and go, wow. Right? I I see that. And we, we see it all the time. You know? But I think my generation might be one of the first generations to actually think, really think realistically, that we can put this off so long, this dying thing, that maybe it won't even, it won't even happen. And, and, and Paul says, I don't want you to be disillusioned. I want you to have a good sense of reality. This is just a tent. You can take care of it and all of that. You should take care of it and all of that. But, but don't think it's more than a tent. You, you really need to realize that it really is wasting away. You, you really are going to die. So don't let that surprise you. Don't be disillusioned by uh, this aging. Don't, don't surprise. And, and don't be discouraged. By the groanings, by the longings that you have. That's a good thing. You will have them. As a believer in Jesus, you look at your life, you look at the lives of others, you look at the world in which we live, and you will have a longing. You'll have a longing for that which is to come. Uh, don't let that discourage you in the sense that, that, that you look at the life and you go, oh, forget this. Because you're still here. But, but allow that, that longing uh, to give you a great sense of, of real strength to continue on in the life in which we live. I've, I've read many accounts over the years. I don't know why this fascinates me. Of, of um, concentration camp survivors and uh, POW survivors and all of that. And very often, not always, but very often, one of the hopes that enables such a person to survive the moments and the moments is a real strong longing for home. They, they see their husbands or their wives' faces in their minds and they, they want to get there. They want to get back there. They want to go there. They see the faces of their children and they, 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 they want to see them. And so one of the things that enables them to survive the moment, the difficulties, what appears to be wasting away and even a sense of hopelessness perhaps, hopelessness that might be even ingrained in them by everything and everyone around them, the hopelessness of the guards and the hopelessness of, of their captors uh, to, 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 to hope they'll just die. But what keeps them, one of the things, is this sense of home. And and Paul says, I have this longing. I have this deep sense for home. And that enables me to survive right now. Because I know, and he even more so than any of these POWs, uh, even more so, he's convinced, he's certain, he knows that home is coming. And so he says, "I I can continue on here without losing heart. I'm realistic, I know what's happening, and, and, and I can continue on uh, without, without losing, 
losing heart. You see, the groanings that we have, fortunately, as believers, it's not the groanings really uh, on the basis of our unforgiven sin. We know we're forgiven by the Lord. Uh, We needn't be uh, groaning because of guilt. We can confess our sins and we know we're forgiven our sins because of what Jesus has done. It doesn't need to be that kind of groaning, but, but this longing, you see, for whom this longing for that which is uh, that which is to come, and then, and then Paul says, "I have this 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 great uh, assurance because I know this the resurrection uh, really really is coming coming. I, I know this this body this new body is really coming. I know that this is light and momentary. What's happening to my body now? A day will come when I'll have a body that will be perfect and I'll be perfectly complete." Uh, in all of in all of that. And so even poet says, even if they kill me, even if they take this away, they just, you know, proceed upon uh, causing me to die faster. I'll, I'll be fine because I, I know what is to come. In fact, there's a delightful story, delightful. And in one sense, a story of an old Scotsman, uh, John Patton, who was a missionary in the 19th century, mid 19th century. And it was a time when the Scots weren't really interested necessarily in doing world missions. And, and it was sort of the beginning of, of, of all of that enterprise, at least in that century. And uh, uh, one of the uh, elders in John Patton's church uh, said to him, you know, if you go there, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. And here was his reply. He said, Mr. Dixon, you're of advanced age now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. There to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Even if they kill you, be of good hope. One other thing, and this was the question. Uh, it arose in the early church, and I'm glad it arose in the early church, because if it didn't, it wasn't answered, I would be confused by it uh, even today. And that's the question, well, well, what happens if I die before Jesus comes back? I mean, this is, this is a great thing. It's telling me that on that great resurrection day and the second coming of Jesus, when, when all of this takes place and I can see the fulfillment of everything, the new heavens, the new earth, the new body, the whole deal. And, and so I'm complete and everything's wonderful and great. But, but what happens if I die before Jesus comes back? It was, a, it was a real question. You might remember when we worked ourselves through, and you probably have read this as well in First Thessalonians in chapter 4, it was a, a question of the church in Thessalonica. What happens if I die before uh, Jesus comes back, and you remember Paul's words there. It's, well, we grieve, but when your friends die uh, in, in the Lord, we grieve, but, but not as those without hope. Not as those without hope. But now Paul gets more specific. Notice verse 6. He says, so we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And then for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has, uh, what he's due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, this question of of what happens right after we die before this great resurrection uh, has been answered variously. Some have held that our souls actually sleep during this time. We're sort of this unconscious soul that's 
that's, that's sleeping. But we have to ask the question, really, is that what it means when, when we hear Paul write like this and we see other instances in Scripture, especially in Revelation, of the martyrs who are talking and, and, and crying out to the Lord. And they don't seem to be asleep. And, and it seems like the word sleep in the Scripture is first used sort of euphemistically of death, but then our bodies sleeping more than our souls. And so, so is that really what it's about? The, some have posited a sense of purgatory that, that immediately upon this death, then we have to be purged of the sin that wasn't purged during this life. So, so then there's this time uh, of in a place called uh, purgatory to, to purge us. But I don't get that impression here from Paul, that there's any time like, like that. And if there was any, uh, any time for Paul to mention that to a group of people, it would have been to the people of Corinth, because you got the sense that they were still so deeply in sin, they weren't going to get rid of all of it uh, by the time they died. And so there might be some purging prospects for them and uh, perhaps even for us at that time. But, but again, Paul doesn't give any impression of that here or anywhere, really, but especially here. Notice what he says. He says, we know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Now, that's not away from the Lord spiritually, but spatially. He's talking about being at home in the body and away from the Lord. We know the Lord's with us here spiritually, but, but we're, we're, we're not in his immediate presence. That's why he says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We, we can't see him. And so we're away from him in that sense. We, we can't see him. So we know that when we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord in that sense. Yes, we have good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So saying we, when we're away from the body, the sense is that we're at home with the Lord, but we're still away from the body. So his previous discussion in the first five verses of chapter five was about he didn't want to be unclothed. And now he's saying, but okay, I, I, it's okay to be unclothed. <laughs> as long as you're in the presence of the Lord. In fact, that's what he says when he writes to the church, to the church in Philippi. Uh, he puts it like this in chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor to me, yet which shall I choose, I can't tell. And here he's debating back and forth. Verse 23 says, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So he says, all right. When you die, as a believer, you're immediately in the presence of the Lord. You're unclothed in the sense that you only receive this resurrection body that comes at the trumpet, now, what exactly one looks like then, I don't, I don't know. Uh, it appears that it may be recognizable when John sees the martyrs in Revelation and they're crying out to the Lord. He sees something and so he sees, I don't know what that would look like at that point in time. Do we get kind of a temporary body? You know, I don't know. Or do we get, a, I don't know. Can I say that again? I don't know. Uh, so don't ask me. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, but he would rather be at home with the Lord. And so he realizes that that's far better to be perfected in that sense, to, to, to be in the very presence of Jesus, to see him, 
No longer living by faith at that point, but by sight I actually see him. I realize he's really here. I see him. And now that's far better. You can get that sense of longing for Paul. He only was joyful to stay because he said, that's more necessary. It's more necessary for you if I stay. But for me, I'd, I'd rather be out of the body and in the presence and at home with the Lord. That's his, his point there. But you know, it's interesting. That though, these, though this is far better, we, I often think of being in glory with the Lord uh, as the complete thing. But it's, it's really not. It, that's still not the complete thing either. Because there's still more to come. There's still the, the body and the new heavens and the new earth and the second coming of Jesus and, and all of that to bring it to consummation. In fact, what we read again in Revelation of these saints in heaven, uh, they're still longing for that too. Notice Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. We'll get into all the context here. But when he, uh, Jesus, opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. So these martyred saints, verse 40, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of the fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves have been. And so there's still the sense there, while it's better, and while it's blissful in that sense, and joyful to be in the very presence of the Lord, there's still, even in the minds of those there, that this isn't yet it for them. That there's still something more to come, which they uh, long for uh, better. And this keeps Paul from losing heart. It enables him to be of good courage and that because he knows that even if his body is wasting away and even if he's dying and even if they kill him he'll be in the very presence of the Lord so there's this sense of realism there's this sense of resurrection Uh, there's this sense of reunion uh, with the Lord and he says Jesus is right, you know. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. (laughs) Don't be afraid. Be afraid of the one who can destroy your body and soul in hell. But we don't have to have that fear as believers in Jesus. And so be of good courage. Future is secure. Your place with the Lord is secure. And thus he says, so right now live in such a way making it your aim to please him. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us, that we would find hope in this truth. It's a truth that, for believers, it's well known to us, but yet still, to walk back through it is of great help. So I pray that we can live in the realism of of the dying and yet in the great hope of the resurrection, the hope of this reunion with, with Jesus. And so, Father, I pray for me, for us, that you would cause that truth 
by your spirit to free us to not worry if you will about that not worry about what is being taken from us but rather that we would simply turn our hearts and our heads and our minds ourselves to live pleasing to you and all that we think and all that we do and all that we say. Father, I pray for all of us, but most especially for those who are today more acutely aware of their weakness, physically and spiritually, most aware of their weakness, emotionally, relationally, most aware of their afflictions. And I I pray, God, you would work in them, in us, but most especially we'd work in them on this day, a deep, a deep assurance that would enable them to be of good courage, to continue on, knowing this eternal weight of glory, bringing even a renewal of their souls today and bringing perfection to their lives, even after they die and when Jesus comes. Father, may we be encouraged by that word. May we be encouraged to live. May we be encouraged to speak of Christ. May we be encouraged to trust him. In Jesus' name.